Series B show. I'm your host, Brandon Jones, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with John W. Thompson for a three part episode where we discuss his legendary career in Silicon Valley. He'll discuss rising up from an entry level employee to executive vice president at IBM, moving on to uh, a role as CEO of Semantic, where he had one of the most successful runs at that time running a public company in tech. Also hitting the Forbes list for highest paid CEOs, you know, in one year making over $70 million. He later went on to head up virtual instruments and along the way chaired a number of large company boards, including Microsoft's board, where he led the search for their current CEO, Satya Nadella. He's a part owner of the Warriors. He's a jazz lover, and he has a lot of other interesting tidbits to share along the way of his journey. So hope you enjoy. I have the true honor and pleasure to welcome Mr. John Thompson to the show. Well, thank you, John. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So I met John at a fundraiser for Kamala Harris. And one thing that stood out before I knew who he was was just how calm and collected and and well put together he was. And we had a chat and got to know each other. And he agreed to be on the show. And I'm very excited to have him here and kind of walk through his, as I call it, hero's journey. So, John, you were born in Fort Dix, New Jersey. Correct. I spent about five years working in Jersey outside of graduating from college. It sounds like somewhere in there you moved to Florida at a younger age. I'd love to hear the quick kind of story around your family, what brought you to Jersey and ultimately to Florida. Well, my father was in the military, and he was at Fort Dix, New Jersey, based there, if you will, or stationed there. And my sister, who was 22 months older than me, she and I uh, were there with the family. I was born there. She was almost two years old, obviously, when I was born. But after about a year, maybe 15 months, we moved to Fort Sills, Oklahoma. Oh, wow. And from there, my father got um, sent off to the Azores Island. And so my mom and sister and I moved back to West Palm Beach, which is where my mom and dad had grown up. And so from about the age of, let's just say, two, two and a half uh, until 17, I lived in West Palm Beach, Florida. So you consider West Palm Beach home? Yes. However, one of the really unusual things about life for me is I've now lived in Silicon Valley longer than anywhere else in my life. Mm. Uh, having spent many years at IBM, as you well know, IBM moves you around. Right. I've been moved, if you right. will. Right. And so about every three to five years over the course of the 27 and a half years or so I was there, I would get another job in a new location. And so this is the longest I've ever lived in one place in my entire life. So this is home. This truly is home <laughs> for me. I'd love to hear a little bit about your family dynamic growing up. What I'm trying to get at is kind of what shaped you, what shaped your perspective in life, some of the decisions you made. There's interesting tidbits I've read about around you looking to be a lawyer at an early age. It sounds like life happened and you somehow gravitated in a different direction. I'd love to hear about some of the formative ingredients you think in your childhood came together to create your perspective. Well, I think the two most influential people in my life were obviously my mom and my dad. 
my mother was a school teacher, eventually ascended to become a principal of a middle school in Palm Beach County. She was very much an academician where she uh, believed in education. Uh, so she had a master's degree, worked toward a doctorate degree, never quite got there, but certainly felt that having the right academic foundation would lead to a better outcome. My father, by contrast, went to Tuskegee Institute and got drafted into the military. Mm -hmm. And so he never finished his degree at Tuskegee, but he was determined uh, as a worker or an employee of any organization that he was a part of. And after he came out of the military, he joined the U.S. Postal Service. He was the first black letter carrier in Riviera Beach, Florida, which was the little community that we grew up in. Wow. And my father was one of these people who, while maybe not the same academic focus as my mother, he had a very, very strong focus on results and discipline and you know working hard, if you will. The work ethic was everything for him. And so the combination of my mother's focus on academics and my father's focus on work ethic shaped uh, to a large extent you know, who I am today, quite frankly. Interesting. And also, I guess what's interesting about that is your mother was a principal, your father was a postal carrier. So I imagine the whole town kind of knew your parents because oh, for sure. they're in a position where they're seeing people all the time. Yeah. And so I would imagine as kind of a result, people knew your family and, and knew of you as well. So was your sister your only sibling? Yes. Up? Okay. So my sister was um, the smart one of the two of us. Uh, she was the valedictorian of her... Uh, high school class, I had no interest in pursuing uh, or competing with her, I should say, for uh, academic stardom. Uh, she went off to Howard University and finished in the top of her class at Howard. Um, I was a musician, finished in the top 10 of my high school class, but went to Lincoln University. What and did you play? Clarinet. Clarinet. was my primary instrument. Okay. But I also played saxophone and a bunch of other reed instruments, if you will. Okay. So, lo and behold, I went to Lincoln University in Jeff City, Missouri, and absolutely hated it. Mm. It was um, the first time that I encountered any racial bias, mm. because one day walking down the street in downtown Jeff City, uh, some white kids, if you will, threw trash at me as they were riding by in a car. And I had never had that experience before right. in my life. And... After that, I went, I don't want to be here anymore. And so after the first year at Lincoln, uh, I had grown up quite a bit. I'd gone off to college. I'd just turned 17. And so I was a little bit of a wild one. <laughs> and I wanted to join my sister at Howard. And Howard at the time, it's now 1967, 68. Right. Uh, my mom and dad were like, no, that is not the place <laughs> for you. Right. So I ended up going to Florida and M University in Tallahassee, Florida, and that has proven to be uh, the next foundational layer, if you will, in my personal development. Just so you know, I'm also a Howard graduate as well. Oh, okay, <laughs> good. And uh, very familiar with FAM, as we call it as well, yeah, Florida yeah, and M University. Yeah. Before we go to college, and I do want to get into college a little bit, what role did high school play in defining how you thought about yourself or what you cared about? It sounds like music played a big piece for you in high school. Yeah, I, I had not only a focus on music, I ran a little track, I swam, 
And so high school started what I would say the competitive element in me. Um, you know, I was the lead woodwind player in the band. Mm-hmm. I was the lead woodwind player in the woodwind ensemble. Uh, I wasn't that good at track and field because I had asthma, and so I couldn't run mm-hmm. distances. I could only run uh, 100-yard sprints or 200-yard sprints, and I did okay in that. And I did pretty well in long-distance swimming, ironically enough. But it taught me the value of competition. More importantly, it taught me how much I wanted to win, how much I cared about winning. The fire. The fire started to burn. Exactly. And so I think, if anything, uh, the foundational element of my high school experience was just about that. Mm. That it's one thing to learn and be good. It's something else to be the best that you can be. It's something else to be the number one person, if you will, in a given category. And that was, I think, very influential throughout, candidly, the rest of my life. Moving to Florida A&M University. Yeah. Which for- A Rattler, man. <laughs> <laughs> so for folks in the audience that don't know, it's a historically black college university, which definitely kind of shapes the experience in some ways. But I love to hear your first thoughts when leaving Lincoln and touching down to Florida A&M University, kind of what was going through your, your mind? And how did you adjust? Because I assume you came in probably midway, somewhere midway in the, fir- in the first year. Uh, no, I came, I, I, I literally restarted. Okay. Rather than saying, okay, I'm going to transfer all those bad credit hours that I had from yeah. Lincoln, yeah. I started all over again. And FAMU was, as I said, it was kind of a default because I really wanted to go to Howard, but my mom and dad didn't want me to go there because they thought I had become too much of a hellraiser. <laughs> and And so arriving at FAMU was sort of like, okay, I'm here, I'll... I'll do okay. And the first quarter was not my finest hour because I was trying to find my sea legs and partying too much and doing too many crazy things. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, okay, if if you're going to make something of this before your mom and dad punch your ticket and call you home, (laughs) you better start to apply yourself. And from that point on, you know, I did very, very well. I majored in business administration with a minor in accounting, and I loved that element, if you will. Back in those days, uh, success in the African-American community was a teacher, a preacher, a doctor, or a lawyer. And there was this third possible career, which was a business person or businessman. But that meant something local. It didn't mean something national, much less something global. But I wanted to be a businessman. I, was, I knew I didn't want to be a teacher or preacher. And I thought, well, maybe a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, oh, by the way, I got married my sophomore year in college. And my wife's father was an attorney and a very successful attorney. And I thought, well, gee, maybe I could be like Ed. Right. And so the aspiration was finish school, work a couple years, go to law school, and then have a career as a lawyer. Two interesting things I want to double click on. Sure. One, so it made sense to me that you had an example of a lawyer. So mm-hmm. that was something to aspire to that you could see. But the business piece was something that you were really interested in. Did you have any models of what a successful business person looked at? You specifically mentioned that like at a local level maybe. Yeah. But who, who are you looking at and, and how are you assessing that? Yeah, so one of my best friends in high school was a guy named Randolph Davis. And Randolph's dad had the local gas station, ran a local supermarket, and had a little nightclub. 
And so here was a guy that you know lived in our community, and oh, by the way, he had three different businesses in the community. Uh, another of my very good friends, his father was a pharmacist, and he ran the local pharmacy that catered to the African-American community. And it was clear that they appeared to be economically far more sound right. and solid than anyone else in the community, right. and hence the click for the businessman aspiration, if you will. The second thing you mentioned was you got married your sophomore year in college, yeah. which so I know there's generational changes, yeah. but that seems really, really young. That is young. I was 19 years old. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how, how you made that decision? and, and what It was real simple. Was. She was My wife was going to have a baby. And, <laughs> and unlike, I guess, um, a lot of kids today who will say, I don't want to be a part of that, or let's put the kid up for adoption, all of mm -hmm. that, the moral values that I grew up with said that you are responsible for mm -hmm. what you've done, and you have to... Uh, it, yeah. Make it right. Mm -hmm. And so Sandy and I, Sissy and I, got married when we were both, um, I guess she just, she was 18, I was 19. We were married for 11 years. When I joined IBM, quite frankly, we kind of grew apart because I had bigger aspirations and bigger desires than she had. She wanted to be a local girl living in. Atlanta, Georgia, which was the black mecca, if you will, at that point in time. And still is in, in some ways. Yeah, that's exactly right. And my view was I don't really care about the city. I care more about the opportunity that is ahead of me. And if that means I have to move anywhere, I'm willing to go do that. And that that set the stage for our marriage kind of falling apart quite quickly. Interesting. Uh, interesting dynamic, I guess, is you came in, fam, you mentioned that first semester, you were getting your feet under, you trying to figure out having fun. That's a big switch. That happened as you got married, you know, had a had a child, et cetera. What did that do mentally for you in terms of either focus, maturity? Was that in some ways kind of what brought you to like the next level of the game? Well, it it created a level of seriousness about right. what I had to accomplish or what I had to get done. Uh, I couldn't very well have a wife and a child and be out partying with the frat brothers all night long or not be worried about my academic record that would translate into whatever the career opportunity was. And so it clearly made me more serious, if you will, than I might have been had I maintained my bachelor status through right, college. Right. I mean, I, uh, I was back at Florida A&M about four or five, maybe six months ago, and met with a bunch of the old fraternity brothers that were there when I was there back in the 60s and 70s. And they had stories of our times together that I don't quite remember. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, um, I think I was a more serious person than any of them back in that period of time. In college, internships are obviously kind of a big situation as far as determining what your next steps and opportunities are coming out. How are you assessing that landscape and kind of what was your first entree into the real corporate world, so to speak? Yeah, I, I never had an internship. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I was married and had a kid, I had to work. And so I went to school every day and worked every afternoon or every night. Um, in my last two years in college, I sold stereo equipment. And it taught me the process of selling and the passion for getting the order, if you will. That pursuit was, was so incredible. And one day while 
in the college outplacement uh, facility, the, a fraternity brother of mine who was running the facility said to me, IBM's coming on campus looking for salespeople. You ought to interview with them. And my view was, wait a minute, man, look at me. I'm, I've got an 800-pound afro, a big mustache. I wear flowered shirts and striped pants and two-tone shoes. I am not an IBM guy. I'm a hippie. Uh, and I don't see myself ever being able to fit into that mold. And he says, just take my word for it. Go do the interview, and we'll see how it works out. And as luck would have it, and it's truly fortuitous, uh, the sales manager who shows up for the interview is looking to buy a stereo system. (laughs) And I ended up spending half of the interview trying to convince him not only to buy the stereo systems that we sold at Stereo Sales, but to buy one from me. And that ended up translating, obviously, into a job offer. Wow. I, I really debated it because my wife was a junior at the time, and I wanted a job in Tallahassee so she could finish her career. Mm-hmm. Um, and they offered me a job in either Jacksonville, Florida, or Tampa, Florida. Mm-hmm. And we decided to move to Tampa. We moved right near the University of South Florida so she could finish her college degree there. And my IBM career got launched there, and it was probably... Um, one of the important foundational steps, if you will, in my tech experience. I've done some research in the past in terms of like, what are the core foundational skill sets that have kind of skyrocketed folks? One, IBM at the time, it sounds like you were having that conversation, literally was like the definitive sales program. So I can imagine when you're having that conversation saying, wow, like this is IBM. But obviously you were successful at IBM. So what moment did you realize, um, like, I can really do this? I'm good at this. Well, back then, IBM's training program was 18 months long. Mm. And so you would come to work every day, and your job every day was to read manuals and to write little simple programs or try to program this, that, or the other. And candidly, it was just unbelievably frustrating for me because I wanted to sell something. Right. And so in... My gosh, it might have been 1972, so about a year into my IBM career, IBM launched a new key punch machine, the thing that punched holes in cards and all that. And uh, I went to our branch manager and I said, look, would you let me sell those, please? I don't need to have a a fancy... Get me in the game, coach. just, Just let me go sell them. Right. And I'll sell them for every rep in the office, I'll go to every one of their accounts and I'll sell key punches for them. Take, they can take the credit. They take the credit, at least I'll get out of the office. And, and sure enough, we had the best key punch sales record that year. Wow. And then lo and behold, I get through the training program. I'm out on a sales call one day with a rep who was a year ahead of me. And we went to make a call on a client in Dade City, Florida. And it was a Napa parts distributor, so it was a new account for this rep. And the office building was on one side of the street, and the store was on the other side of the street. Mm -hmm. So we were in the office building, sitting down, talking to the CIO. And when he signed the order and handed it over to Tom, he turned to me and he says, So, John, tell me about yourself. What do you do, and what are you trying to accomplish? 
So I told him, well, I'm a trainee and I will soon be out of the training program and someday I want to have a territory like Tom mm -hmm. where I can sell systems to new accounts. And in the IBM world, you start there and then you sell to mid-sized businesses, then you sell to large enterprises. Right. And so he looks at me and then he looks at Tom and he says, don't ever bring him back here again. And so Tom's like, well, why is that? Right. He says, well, if you notice, our office building is here and our shop's over there. The people who own our company don't like Negras. Oh, wow. Wow. And that was a shock. Yeah, I'm um, sure. And IBM had a policy back then that was, if you won't do business with our rep, we won't do business with you. And this is 1972. And so Tom called the branch manager immediately to let him know what had happened. And when we got back to the branch many hours later that afternoon, everyone was quite concerned and alarmed. And so I spent some time with the sales manager and the branch manager and spent a lot of time thinking about it the night, that night. And the next morning I went in and I said to the branch manager, you know, this is not my account. This is Tom's account. So the reason to not do business with this customer is not because they won't do business with your rep, because I'm not the rep. So you guys have to make a conscious decision as to whether or not you really want this business, because it doesn't have anything to do with me. So, but what it does have to do with me is that I'm gonna have to sell new accounts to people with that kind of attitude in Central Florida. Yeah. And that's a scary thought when I start to think about what I need to do to support my family. Right. And literally, I went from a trainee to selling large systems to large accounts wow. overnight. Wow. So it cut, I don't know, three or four years off of my career. Blessing in disguise. And you, I used to jokingly refer to this guy because he was huge. He must have been three, four hundred pounds. I would refer to him as Java the Hut. <laughs> Java the Hut. And Jabba doesn't know what he did for me in a wow. positive sense uh, yeah. by saying what he said. So you were still based in Florida or the, the yeah, large sale accounts yeah. were still in Florida? Okay, and I'm glad to hear that one because in a lot of ways that could have been a potential derailment where you could have just said, you know what, this isn't a career for me. This sure. is not going to work. I'll never sure. succeed here. But there's two things that come to mind. One is the policy that IBM had, which seemed to be, especially around that time, you said 72-ish, mm -hmm. um, seems to be kind of a, a radical posture to take depending on how many folks of color that they had kind of work for IBM. And so what was the landscape uh, around the time you were there? Yeah, well, so remember, the world changed in the early to mid-60s as the Civil Rights Bill was passed. Okay. And IBM was considered then, and in some people's mind even to this day, still very much a leader uh, in American business. And... And so they had policies and practices that truly were leading edge. And if they were out at historically black colleges trying to attract young African-Americans to come work for them, right. they couldn't very well not be supportive of them in a very positive way once they did come to work right. for them. Right. And so the evolution of their policies were as much about supporting their workforce that happened to be, in this particular instance, African-American. And so just because, you know, we're having a lot of conversations now in tech around percentages, et cetera. Sure. What were the percentages like, if you, if you had to kind of guess? Well, I was the first African-American sales rep in Tampa, Florida. Mm -hmm. 
there were, when I got my first promotion to go to the regional staff in Atlanta, there were two of us, me and a guy named Eric Collier from Miami. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up having a roommate for a period of time um, that was an African-American SE who had gone, grown up in Birmingham, Alabama. Right. Uh, but we were few and far a handful, between. Yeah. A handful. But it was a very tight network. Um, and so we all knew one another. And as your career progressed, right. you would always reach out to people in the network to ask their opinion or to get their advice on, should I do this? Should I consider this? What would you do if you were facing these circumstances? And that network was pretty powerful mm -hmm. and, quite frankly, pretty helpful to me and many others during that period of time. I want to put a, a, a sticky note in that and come back to that sure. in the future. But something I want to transition to now is you went to MIT to get your MBA. Yeah. Two things I want to kind of click on. One is I went to Harvard for a business school. They had not had a formal sales program or sales training program or class or curriculum at HBS. And this has kind of been an age-old conversation around can you formally train sales? What's the value of training sales? But then if you look at the Fortune 500, a lot of the folks that are running these companies you know, came from a sales background. Mm -hmm. So my first question is, kind of what is your perspective on like the idea of training folks in sales? Uh, and then the second piece is kind of what made you decide to kind of step away and, and go to get your MBA from MIT? Yeah, so the whole sales thing ended up evolving out of that stereo sales experience I had when I was at Florida A&M. And my best shot at success at IBM was to leverage the set of foundational skills that I had that were all about selling. And what IBM taught me was more about the products on one hand and the value of the relationships mm -hmm. that you have to build if you're going to be an effective sales rep in a large enterprise environment. And I had a very, very early mentor, a um, guy by the name of Dick Lemon, who passed away, my gosh, maybe 10 years or so after I joined the company. And Dick was a very, very senior sales leader. And when I got assigned to his team to be a part of the general telephone team, he took me under his wing, and one day, in a very crude way, because Dick was a pretty crude guy, he said to me, stick with me, kid, I'll have you farting through silk underwear. <laughs> <laughs> the whole idea was, I'm going to make you rich and famous like he was, because by all standards, at least in my mind, Dick Lemon was a rich guy. Right. He drove a Cutlass convertible and a Jaguar XKE convertible. Big deal. That was a big deal back in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. and, and he wore fancy blue suits. Well, I wore two sister suits, Polly and <laughs> Esther. <laughs> and so it was clear that Dick had achieved some things that I aspired to achieve. And it was all from a successful sales career, mm. not being a manager, not mm -hmm. being a programmer, not being anything, being a very successful salesman. Got it. And so he became the benchmark for me in the early part of my career. Interesting. Now, as time progressed, I moved from Tampa to Atlanta and then Atlanta to Boston. And my next real mentor was a guy named Paul Palmer who ran the Northeast region for IBM. And the first job I had in the Northeast was to be a regional sales manager. 
And oh, by the way, this is 1979. Big scenery change. Big scenery change and not a place for African-Americans. Really? Boston was not a place for African-Americans mm. in the late mm -hmm. 70s. And I got advice from the Black Network, don't go there. Wow. But I went anyway. And Paul, what was your rationale? Uh, my view was I needed a change. I'd been in Atlanta for a couple of years. I'd just gone through a divorce. It was time for me to get a fresh view of the world. And so Boston was an opportunity for a fresh view of the world. And fortunately, after six months, eight months there, this guy Paul Palmer took me under his wing and made me his chief of staff. Wow. And I'm like, wow, you mean to tell me I get to be the chief of staff to the regional manager of one of the most powerful regions right. in the country? Because that was back when Deck and Gillette and there were all these, yeah. all these big, big companies in yeah. Boston. Um, so from that role, I then got the job to run a branch. Mm. And that branch ended up being the best performing branch in its category mm. the year I ran it. Just happened to be, you say? Just happened. <laughs> and then I got a call one day from Paul asking me to come see him. And so his office was a couple floors up, so I went up to see him. And he lets me know that the branch had been nominated and won the class award. And, mm -hmm. and oh, by the way, uh, the chairman of the board at IBM had just approved me going to MIT Sloan School. Nice. Nice. And I'm like, well, I don't want to do that. Right. And he says, yes, you do. <laughs> and I went, well, why? Yeah. And he says, because the chairman would like for you to do that. And they pick two people per year to go to MIT, and you're one of the two they picked this year. Wow. And I'm like, okay. And so for the next year, I went to school every day, got paid like a so you're full time full-time mm -hmm. employee, but my job was to go awesome. to school. Right. And it became another one of those foundational experiences along the way where uh, I got to work with people during that year who come from Kodak, from AT&T. AT&T was in the midst of its breakup, if right. you will. Learning from them about their career experiences and what was going on in their companies because most of them had come from other very large U.S.-based companies. There were 55 of us in the class, 55 or 53, um, and I'd say 11 or 12 were international, mm -hmm. and of those 11 or 12, half of them were from Japan. Mm. And so it was a very interesting first-time experience right. for me right. to have interactions with international different colleagues, cultures, if right, you will, right. different cultures, and it, it proved to be uh, formative for sure. And that concludes part one of the John W. Thompson episode of the series B Show. Hope you enjoyed it. Definitely check part two out where John will walk us through how he got people to take him under his wing, learning the nuances to adapt successfully in the environment at IBM, including uh, the trade-offs around assimilation in the corporate environment. He discusses building a network of people that were strong supporters of his career, which helped him be tapped and also rise through the leadership ranks at IBM. Talked a little bit about the sacrifices he made along the way personally to achieve what he achieved in his career as well. So definitely check out part two. And always remember, be true, be you.